0: This is Paul Herman and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WRT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: After sparks flew between him and Wisconsin legislators yesterday, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman is demanding two Wisconsin mayors answer questions for him or be jailed. That's according to reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Gableman is heading up a taxpayer-funded investigation into the 2020 presidential election, a project formed by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Gableman says Green Bay Mayor Eric Greenrich and locally Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway defied his request to meet with him in November, but the two say they were not required to meet with him at that time. Rhodes-Conway wrote in a statement shortly before broadcast that valid legislative subpoenas can only compel testimony before a legislative committee. And that details of that subpoena would need to be worked out within with the city attorney writes roe conway quote attorney gableman apparently missed the october headlines saying that i was proud of and willing to testify publicly about madison's handling of the 2020 election we here in madison remain ready to share the details of how we ran a safe and fair election during a global pandemic before the legislative committee where taxpayers can see how their money is being spent unquote
0: Out of lots of elections-related news from yesterday, here's one we missed. Republican State Representative Amy Loudenbeck has announced a run to become Wisconsin's Secretary of State, saying saying that the position would allow her to put a check on the state's elections administration agency, reports the Associated Press. In Wisconsin, the Secretary of State, a position that has been held by Democrat Doug LaFollette for almost four decades, does not administer elections. That power lies with the Wisconsin Elections Commission, a bipartisan agency. But Loudonbeck says the Secretary of State should have some of those administrative duties over elections. She faces three other Republicans in the bid for the office. That election is in fall 2022, as with other state offices.
1: Wisconsin's hospitals are restraining under the weight of patients with COVID-19 and they're treating a number of COVID cases not seen since December, 2020. In a briefing today, state health officials described instances of people seeking emergency care being turned away because of strained hospital capacity, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. 97% of ICU beds across the state are in use. The seven-day average of COVID-19 cases stands at 3,015. State health officials also say the newest variant of Omicron has not yet been found in Wisconsin, but Michigan health officials announced today that the latest variant is still being studied. Earlier this week, the city of Milwaukee issued a mask advisory, citing the rate of spread of concerns about the new variant, but that advisory is just that, an advisory and not a mandate. Here in Dane County, a mask mandate is still in effect through the new year.
0: Speaking of that mask mandate in Dane County, a proposal to rescind our local mask mandate until public comment is gathered failed last night before a City of Madison and Dane County Joint Public Health Committee, reports the Capital Times. The proposal was authored by Dane County Supervisor Jeff Weigand, who was elected to the position during the special election in August. In the resolution and in speaking before the Board of Health, Weigand called for the... called for the current mask mandate to be dropped until public input had been gathered.
1: In and and even more mask-related news, WKOW reports that a federal judge has ruled against Helen Bach's cafe in Madison, stating that the city did not infringe on his rights after instituting a mask mandate last year. On July 13, 2020, the cafe, the cafe had placed a mask-free zone sign in their window. The judge said that even if the sign could be considered protective speech, the city, the city still had the right to issue a notice of intent to revoke their license after they, after they refused to comply with the emergency order. The judge sent two of Helen Bach's claims back to Dane County Court as they fall under Wisconsin state law.
0: La Follette High School was locked down for part of today, and all athletic and extracurric- extracurricular activities are canceled tonight after a student brought a loaded gun to school. The student was arrested and taken to the Dane County Jail. Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes told the Wisconsin State Journal that extra police patrols are planned for La Follette High School for the rest of the week. Extra MPD patrols are also planned for East High School after that school had also experienced fights and other turbulence this fall semester. And now to today's top stories.
1: Yesterday was a packed day at the state capitol. Flying slightly under the radar, though, was a series of proposals related to custody and parental rights issues. One in particular could impact incarcerated parents. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has the story.
2: A crowd of people gathered into a capitol hearing room yesterday to comment on a slate of bills being considered by an assembly committee on family law. Those bills would change a number of grounds within the juvenile courts. Most prominent, though, is a Republican-led bill that could strip parental rights from incarcerated people. The bill would create new grounds under which juvenile court may determine if a parent is unfit to parent their child. And as part of making that decision, juvenile courts could consider a parent's history of repeated incarceration. Both activists and community members proffered testimony before the committee. They said that the bill could hurt both parents who are incarcerated as well as their children. Marianne Olison was one of those community members.
3: I was convicted. Seven counts of omissions, misrepresentations, and stocks and securities. Class G felonies. Maximum prison sentence one year. I was sentenced consecutive seven years. I would lose my daughters, my three beautiful adult daughters, one of which is now a surgeon. Two are business executives who I raised. I am not the sum of my crime.
2: Ramaya Whiteside is an organizer with Expo or Ex-Incarcerated People for Organizing. That's a group dedicated to dismantling mass incarceration and excessive supervision. Whiteside says that the group is wholly against the bill and that it will only bring more suffering.
4: When you remove uh, that uh, 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 parental-child connection, I mean, you're doing a disservice not only to the parent, but you're doing a disservice, you know, to the child. That's one of our innate sacred bonds. Uh, That we have, you know, from parents to children. So, when you disrupt that, you're going to further perpetuate what leads to more incarcerations, what leads to more dysfunctions in the community, what leads to breaking up, you know, more families. And all of these different ingredients are the staple ingredients, which lead oftentimes to putting people in a uh, worse off position. Not saying it forces anybody to do anything, but it puts you in a worse off position. Uh, to make poor choices in your life. So this bill further perpetuates broken homes.
2: The bill could also be in conflict with existing precedent. In 2006, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that a juvenile court cannot terminate parental rights based on a parent's history or of current incarceration status. In that case, the state Supreme Court said that it was a violation of due process. Abby Barlev Wiley is legislative and compliance director for Legal Action of Wisconsin.
1: And so this bill very clearly contradicts the supreme, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Now, we don't have any insight into whether this is the intention of the legislature um, or whether it's an oversight. I have no idea. We can't speculate as to why they're why they're doing this. Um, but there is this fairly clear precedent in Wisconsin law.
2: Bob Held is Family Law Priority Coordinator for Legal Action Wisconsin. He says the bill would disproportionately affect those most vulnerable.
3: It would have an outsized impact on our clients who are often, all of our clients are people who are low income, and it would have an outsized impact on people of color, Black people, and Native Americans. The current statistics indicate um, from the Department of Health Services, indicate that um, there are already a disproportionate amount of Black and Native American children in foster care in Wisconsin. Um, This has been a national trend, and because more African American and Native American parents are in the um, criminal justice system due to the mass incarceration of black indigenous people of color in the United States and especially in Wisconsin. The bill
2: is authored by seven Republican lawmakers. Those are Representatives Barbara Dietrich of Oconomowoc, William Penterman of Columbus, Rick Gundrum of Slinger, Jeffrey Mersau of Krivitz, Ron Tussler of Harrison, Patrick Snyder of Schofield, and Jeremy Thiesfeld of Fond du Lac. All representatives are Republican. A total of eight organizations, including ACLU of Wisconsin, Ho-Chunk Nation, and the Wisconsin Council of Churches, have registered against the bill. The bill still faces passage by the Assembly Committee. If it passes there, it would head for approval to the entire State Assembly. A similar bill in the State Senate is also in committee. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wageho.
1: It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Pre-pandemic, it used to be that we would feature a journalist from Ithmus newspaper every week on Thursdays. Now that the Alt Weekly has returned, they're releasing papers monthly, WRT producer Nate Wedgehout sat down with Dylan Brogan, who wrote this month's cover story, which came out today. The story is titled Murder for Hire on the Dark Web. Joining me
2: today is Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for the Isthmus and writer of this month's cover story, Murder for Hire on the Dark Web. The story follows Dylan as he is tasked by the BBC to inform a some prairie man that his ex-wife has paid for him to be murdered on the dark web. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. So starting off, this is a behemoth of a tale that has a lot of moving parts, but briefly, can you summarize how you found yourself knocking on Travis Harper's door to tell him that someone was going to murder him?
5: Yes, I was contacted by uh, by journalists uh, working on this podcast. I thought it was going to be for the BBC. It might not be, but that's how it was presented to me at the time. Anyway, they um, needed a freelancer because they were working on this project where – They have a source who is uh, giving them access to the back end of a dark website where it's a murder-for-hire site, where you can go on and pay Bitcoin to have somebody murdered. Now, uh, one thing that should be mentioned is that these sites uh, don't—you pay them to hire a hitman, and the hitman doesn't actually come. But um, they've been investigating um, these cases all over the world, and one of them happened to be in Sun Prairie, so— I got tasked with knocking on this guy's door, and all I knew was that somebody wanted him
2: dead. So what was going through your mind? How did you prepare yourself to deliver that kind of information to him?
5: Well, I passed by the house a few times, and um, then, I don't know, stomached the nerve to go up and knock. So a a little funny backstory about it was it actually took me a few times to find him at home, So, uh, but eventually found him at home, and— you know, at first, Travis Harper, uh, when you, w- what is somebody going to say, right? Right. Uh, hey, I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am, but I'm working as a journalist, and all I know is that someone paid money to try to, to hire a hitman to have you killed. Now, I don't think there's a threat necessarily, but one thing I have learned is that uh, with these dark web assassin sites, um, you know, you invest some money in an uh, idea, no matter what it is, uh, you you have maybe perhaps more motivation to uh, commit whatever that is or commit that crime does that make any sense Yeah yeah I think that makes sense it's like if you, once you've committed to hiring someone uh, to kill somebody it it does it follows that uh, perhaps you're willing to take other steps besides that
2: so how how long did it take for Travis to trust you I know you mentioned in the article there that you he shut the door on your face the first time.
5: Yep. At first he said uh, he was very deeply suspicious of me. I later learned that he thought maybe I was the it w- What was crazy is like what he thought it didn't even really shock him that someone wanted him dead. He kind of knew. And that, so I guess we should get to that point that he has been involved in such a crazy story that all this didn't seem as crazy as perhaps if somebody told this to you or I. Um, so he but at first, he didn't know what to think of me, uh, thought maybe I was the assassin. Uh, so he shut the door on me. But then he got a call from uh, someone with a British accent, and, and I headed back over there about six hours later, and he decided to at least hear us out. So
2: in the article, you do mention that uh, the Sun Prairie police came by and were convinced that you were trying to scam Travis. Why did they think
5: that you were trying to scam him, and what was your reaction? Well, I just learned that from Travis because I was there when he first contacted the police. Uh, and, you know, we went through this whole kind of sordid tale. Um, and and I really encourage everyone to read the full story because it is a little complicated. But some Prairie police, uh, you know, they basically told him that, you know, if you had, we, we We don't really believe this. We think he's scamming you. So I don't know what else to say about that. But uh, the next day, the FBI was involved and they took it very seriously. Yeah. How
2: did do you know how the FBI ended up getting involved
5: in that? Yeah. The um, Travis's girlfriend and Travis Harper's the individual who was targeted. uh, His girlfriend called the FBI the next morning because she didn't trust the Sun Prairie police to properly investigate this. And then the Sun Prairie police got a call from the FBI and they started taking it seriously, too. All right. So, yeah, it turns out, yeah. So
2: just calling the FBI. Yeah, and
5: and, uh, them know. and now we get into a little bit of the the kind of the tragic circumstance about it. Well, this was the person uh, who Travis suspected uh, that was his ex wife who had been going through a very ugly custody battle with. And she basically confessed and was arrested about a few weeks later after the FBI um, confronted her about it. And what I learned after that is also like kind of a tragic story about just the family court system and how it can be exploited by individuals. Um, And, you know, people like police officers and teachers and court officials who, you know, there was kids involved in this custody battle. Um, But uh, Travis's uh, ex-wife, Kelly Harper, I mean, she had accused him of abusing her and the kids like constantly in the last five years, and it was escalating, escalating, escalating. And, you know, that's very concerning when you hear that, though, right? Who do you believe? Well, no one could have been investigated more than this guy. I mean, uh, he went through dozens of um, interviews and interviews with the kids and safe harbor interviews and court documents and everything. And it turns out that none of these, you know, uh, abuse allegations were ever substantiated. In fact, finally, uh, after four or five years of these false allegations, a judge told, you uh, Kelly Harper, that if you continue to do this to your ex and keep making these false allegations, I'm going to take the kids away from you. And Travis never wanted that, um, but that's how bad it was. He had installed security cameras in his house so he could play back the tape to show he didn't abuse his kids, uh, which is a, an extreme measure. But he was, you know, made a to be a villain all over Sun Prairie, all over his kids' schools. She was trying to ruin his reputation, and finally, uh, the c- court system. Um, told her to knock it off. This is parental alienation. You can't do it. And then it was a few months later that she went onto the dark web to try to hire someone to kill her husband or ex-husband.
2: The story did come out uh, in the isthmus this morning. Yes. uh, And I read through it almost immediately. And, yes, it is uh, very, very well written and very interesting and, like you said, complicated.
5: There. Yes, and not the normal sort of news story that I'm used to doing, but I think it is an, uh, an important one uh, and kind of the thing that Isthmus is good at in terms of just uh, good storytelling and an interesting, crazy thing. And who knows? Uh, I'm just glad I didn't end up dead. And at one point it looked like I could have been. Yes, I that
2: I can definitely. That was a sketchy situation yeah. at certain points there, for sure. How So the BBC... Had learned about this murder for hire uh, and they learned that it was a scam. How did the BBC know that these murder for hire scam uh, plots were a well, scam? Well, I don't
5: really know much about the source that they were getting. Basically, what uh, the these producers of this upcoming podcast were getting was somebody would enter an order in for a hitman mm-hmm. and out would pop out uh, like the victim's name and where they are can be found and evidence that a financial transaction had taken forth. So the BBC knew the whole time that these. We're not these murder for hire sites. If you're looking to hire an assassin, the dark web is not a place to do it. They're almost all scams. And I did a lot of research. I don't think there's no website where you can actually hire someone to go murder them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, this individual, Kelly Harper, uh, she got scammed out of a few thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. And then she went and tried to hire use a different dark website to uh, hire another assassin. So, uh, and this has been happening all over the world where people think that the motive is real, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, these people get caught up in what essentially is a scam because what are they going to do? Are they going to call the police and say, hey, I tried to hire a hitman, but they never delivered? Doesn't really work like that. Right. So, in fact, you get six years in federal prison. There you go. So I just have one last
2: question for you here. How is Travis now? Have you been able to keep in contact with him at all?
5: Yes, he's shaken up, and he had to leave uh, Sun Prairie Community because um, it was just too much for his kids and his family to sort of be in the middle of this. It was already an ugly situation. Um, And, you know, one thing they tell you as journalists is don't ever write about custody battles. They're complicated and they are right um rarely do but this one is a little bit different in the fact that uh, one of the parties um tried to have the other the other one killed right right and (laughs) so i think that um but remember there's a lot of innocent people who i think were you know believed this woman's accusations against her ex-husband that he really was abusive and he was painted as a villain and uh, you know, I did a lot of research to make sure that none of these allegations were ever held up and they didn't. And I mean, it's just crazy how someone could exploit the court system. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in investigations mm-hmm. that, that were none of them were ever proven um, to be true at all. And, and, and in fact, um, there is finally, uh, you know, a Dane County judge put a stop to it. And after exploiting the system for this law, and that's when Kelly Harper turned to the dark web to try to deal with her ex-husband problem.
2: I've been talking with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for the Isthmus and the writer of this month's cover story, Murder for Hire on the Dark Rub, which you can read in the latest issue of Isthmus as well as online at Isthmus.com. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me on this today. Oh, thank you.
1: And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up.
0: We look at chronic wasting disease. know Baines goes on a feline photography adventure. And Radio Chipstone harkens back to a historic Christmas tree.
1: But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my co-host, Paul Herman. Thanks for joining us.
0: Wisconsin's Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, wants to hear from the public about its strategies to address a fatal disease that's affecting the deer herds. Jonah Chester, now of the Wisconsin News Connection, has the story. The Department of Natural Resources wants
3: Wisconsinites to weigh in on its efforts to address chronic wasting disease, or CWD. The always fatal disease that affects the brains of some deer, elk, and moose appeared in Wisconsin for the first time nearly 20 years ago. Tom Hauge of the Environmental Advocacy Group Wisconsin's Green Fire says since then, cases of CWD have increased from about 200 in 2002 to an all-time high of nearly 1,600 last year. What we
6: have seen is a steady increase in the distribution of the disease in the state as well as the
7: number of deer who are positive for chronic wasting disease.
3: The DNR will host a virtual public meeting December 3rd at 9 a.m. It's an opportunity to offer feedback on the state's efforts to address CWD. A link to register for the session is on the DNR's website. Wisconsin wrapped up its nine-day gun deer hunting season last week, Part of the DNR's monitoring effort for CWD is urging hunters to submit samples to the department before consuming venison. Public health officials recommend against eating deer meat that has tested positive for CWD. Amanda Camps with the DNR says the number of CWD infections may change as those tests roll in.
1: We're still collecting all the samples and getting them entered into our database, getting them sent in for testing. So still looking at getting a lot of test results in yet from the nine-day season.
3: So far this year, the DNR has diagnosed nearly 500 cases of chronic wasting disease in wild deer. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: Cats of Madison is an Instagram page that spotlights local feline friends. Since its founding several years ago, the account has amassed 22,500 followers. In this archival edition of New Domains, feature contributor Paul Herman joins Cats of Madison founder Jason Nolan on a search for the page's newest celebrity. I the would be cooler, 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 cooler,
0: Welcome to New Domains, a series about digital culture in and around Madison. My name is Paul Hearn. today I'll be sharing another story behind our virtual landscape. With fall weather setting in, the homes around Orton Park in the Willie Street neighborhood of Madison have plenty of people and pets walking about. But according to one person, it's also one of the best spots to find cats lounging on their porches. Jason Nolan runs Cats of Madison, an Instagram account that almost daily shares photos of cats from around the city. Starting in 2016, the account now has over 20,000 devoted followers. Then a grad student at UW-Madison in sociology, Jason now works for CapTel, a company that provides captioning services for deaf and hard of hearing folk. But through all the changes, he's kept the account running. Last Tuesday, Jason showed me around the Orton Park area to search for cats. Unfortunately, the felines were not feeling up to it today, but one pair of porch cats were in the mood to greet us.
7: Black one's Lucy, the other one's Violet. Hey, buddy, you want to say hi? Back here. Come on. Lucy is sometimes reluctant, but she'll end up jogging over. Hi, Violet.
0: You ready for the mic? I sat down with Jason as well to ask of how the account started and what he has learned about cats along the way. For Jason, who was sharing photos on his personal account at first, the idea
7: felt random. And it just struck me one day, I don't know why, but it just struck me that I should start a separate account just for the cats. And I call it Cats of Madison. And when I did it, I remember thinking, someone's probably already doing this. Someone already has the name. And I checked and no one was. So... I started it, not really thinking much about it, and pretty quickly it took off and I got a lot of followers. And then I thought, well, now what am I gonna do? Like, where am I, how am I gonna get pictures of cats to post to this account? But I realized pretty quickly that there are cats everywhere in Madison. There are, I mean, I know, I would say I know personally about 300 cats by name. I think they probably know me at this point. Um, So it turned out not to be that hard to find them. Still a lot of work to do it, but they're there.
0: You started in 2016, it's been going on for five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you said, you were worried at first that you wouldn't have
7: enough photographs of cats. Uh, So what's kept you going all five years so far? (laughs) That's a great question. I love a lot of different things about it. I love that I have all of these cats in my life now that in in a sense, I consider them friends. I love the people that I've kind of, that have come into my world as a result of Cats and Madison, um, people that I never would have met probably or had any connection to. Otherwise, I do think that, I mean, I get a lot out of it or I wouldn't be doing it. Um, But also, you know, times are really tough right now for everyone. I think a lot of people are experiencing sort of trauma. A lot of people are feeling depressed right now. And I think, I hope, that the posts that I'm putting up um, on Cats of Madison is one of the few things that we still have that's kind of like pure and happy and um, that can bring people some enjoyment in such a challenging, horrible time.
0: Yeah, I would say like, cats are kind of like the mascot of the internet and (laughs) with the internet these days, there's so, so many stories of just how toxic it can be. So having a page that kind of goes back to that's roots of like the cats that you could see on the internet, I think definitely can bring people joy.
7: Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, I've gotten feedback to indicate that as well. Um, and I think, you know, Cats of Madison specifically, as you said, cats are kind of the mascot of the internet. Cats are kind of, like cat photographs are kind of a dime a dozen on the internet. Um, not that I don't love them, but I think that the kind of added element of Cats of Madison is that it's local, it's this community based thing. and so. Um, people aren't just looking at pictures of cats. They're seeing cats in their community. They may be seeing their cat or it's a cat of one of their friends. Um, they're, they see people who are commenting on the posts that they know or who are part of their community. And so it adds that added element that goes beyond just kind of cute or interesting cat photos.
0: Mm. Um, what are the kind of interactions that you have
7: with people online with the photos that you have? Um, I would say for Cats of Madison, the interactions I have are really great, really positive Um, people. People comment on posts a lot and people say like really funny, clever things and really sweet things um, about cats and about me, which I appreciate. Um, So it's been, I mean, that's one of the things that really keeps me going and doing this um, because I, I mean, I make some money, but I don't make a lot. I was, doing the math recently. And I would guess that I make about 50 cents an hour for all the work I do for Cats of Madison. Um, but I do really enjoy people interacting with me and seeing people interacting with each other uh, in the comments. So it's been really positive.
0: So a few weeks ago, you were posting pictures from the Humane
7: Society. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, I, so I started working with the Humane Society uh, just before the pandemic hit. Uh, this was probably January or February of 2020. Um, I had uh, sort of developed this plan with them where I was gonna go once a month and take pictures of the the Pets in the Lonely Hearts Club. So that's pets who have been in the shelter for longer than a month, and post those to try and help in the uh, adoption effort. But of course, um, the pandemic prevented all that from happening and people couldn't go, volunteers couldn't go into the shelter for over a year. Um, But I would love to pick that back up when when people are able to go back indoors and be around each other, um, but as a general rule, when it, whenever a local um, adoption or rescue org asks me for help with promotions or photos or whatever, I'm always going to say yes. If you know if I'm in town, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to do it for free.
0: For people that do want to help take care of cats, what? Are good organizations
7: or good things that they can do? Yeah, so I would um, really strongly recommend working with uh, Dane County Humane Society. I think they're doing really excellent work. Um, I also really like Shelter from the Storm. That's another local org um, that does cat and dog uh, adoption, rescue and adoptions, and I think they're doing really good work, so I would recommend looking into them.
0: What are some of the number one or the number one thing that you think people misunderstand
7: about cats that you've learned through this experience? (laughs) I mean, this will be trite. Cats are very different from dogs in important ways. Um, And I think a lot of people want cats to be more like dogs. And I think really what it comes down to is cats often won't do what you want them to do. They're selective about when and with whom they share affection. They don't give you like this constant kind of affirmation in the way dogs do. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, that's just not what they're interested in, in a pet or in um, someone else's pet. Uh, But I, those are the very qualities about cats that really make me love them and respect them. And it, it may be silly to say, but if you're regularly around cats and sort of adjusting your behaviors to their kind of fickleness or their um, really kind of setting uh, and communicating of boundaries, you are maybe adopting habits in yourself and characteristics in yourself that make you more respectful of people and their communication of boundaries and and, um, everyone's need for consent in a variety of ways. I don't have any evidence of this, but I really suspect that having kids be around cats um, at at a young age and probably dogs as well and teaching them um, to respect the boundaries and read the kind of things that uh, animals are communicating to them is likely going to make them lead to them growing up to be the kinds of people who will show that kind of same care and respect for other people.
0: Last Tuesday, I certainly learned that cats won't always do as you expect. But in the end, I was able to make a couple new feline friends, even if they were shy to the microphone. Let's hear that meow.
7: Do you have anything to say? This is your time to shine. (laughs) I love these two. Thank you for listening
0: to New Domains. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Herman. It's now 6.44 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WRT. time in two years, the Wisconsin History Museum on Carroll Street will brighten up the holiday with an exhibit featuring the space trees of the 1960s, also known as Evergleams. Theron George's is the author of The Evergleam Book, 60th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. Published in 2019, George's book is a mixture of photographs, original advertisements, and cataloged information. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone. George's tells contributor Jennifer Fields that his love for this, his love for the far out shiny atomic space trees, started right here on Earth.
6: We have to go back to my childhood in the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties, and my parents, who are deceased, and I say this in the really, in a loving way sometimes we're a little bit behind the times at least i felt so as a teenager they still have their original aluminum christmas tree which we have captured in photographs from the 1960s but they still had it in the 1970s and early 80s and then it kind of disappeared some of my very happiest memories are of that aluminum Christmas tree in my childhood that was probably uh, thrown out with the trash at some point because nobody in my family has it now. I guess the memory and the attempt to recapture my childhood and that nostalgia was really the beginning of the Evergreen book. And then in a second sense, I remember in 2004, when I had already started to rekindle my interest in aluminum Christmas trees. Of course, I bought the now very famous book by John Shimon and Julie Lindemann, which is called Seasons Gleanings. It's a pictorial essay, more than a written word essay, about aluminum Christmas trees in portraits. I've actually told John this since we're now friends, but I said, I regretted that I didn't do that book.
4: It's one thing, to have a love for these trees and have that pull towards nostalgia. But it's another thing to recreate an entire catalog.
6: As a collector, I admit I look every day on the online auction sites for that gem that I don't yet have in my collection. But in so doing, it amazes me how frequently I come across an advertisement or a listing For an aluminum Christmas tree, which is to no fault of the seller really in error, just completely in error, a complete misrepresentation of what the person is actually selling. That doesn't hurt the seller terribly, but when the buyer receives an object which was described one way and they receive something completely different. It's another story. And there certainly is a need for a reference book that, at least insofar as Evergreens is concerned, gives you the tools, gives you the know, gives you the technical language to intelligently discuss, buy, sell, trade, and talk about aluminum Christmas trees.
4: Theron, it's interesting that you say that because I had to decide who I was as as somebody who wants the tree. Am I someone who wanted an actual Evergleam in my home? Or am I someone who just wants an uh, aluminum tree that may or may not be an original, maybe Frankenstein together from a number of parts, could be a retro recreation from some shop somewhere. So I guess in my mind, it's the condition of the collector. Are You have to decide if you're a collector who wants an authentic tree or if you're a collector who just wants something gleaming and shining in their house.
6: Just this week, here in December of 2020, all historical sales records were broken when an 8-foot-94 branch pink ever aluminum Christmas tree sold for $5,000 on eBay.
4: You can't see me, but my my chin is on the floor because I'm not even going to lie right now, Farron. If I was going to get one, I want a pink one. (laughs) I want that pink tree.
6: If the buyer had had the Evergreen book, and maybe they do. I don't know who that buyer is, and it doesn't matter, and I hope they'll be very happy with their acquisition, But if they had my book, they would understand that the version of the tree they bought was really a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree as opposed to a deluxe pink aluminum Christmas tree. The difference being that the standard version have the lesser number of branches for a given height, whereas the deluxe version has more branches for a given height. In the case of this pink aluminum Christmas tree, which was eight feet tall, it had 94 branches. That's considered a standard pink aluminum Christmas tree. The Holy Grail, if you want an eight foot tree, would be item 4918, which would have had 121 or 124 branches. It doesn't matter. The person who bought that tree, I'm sure, is going to be thrilled with what they got. And for sure, they do have a a wonderful prize. But it would be the type of collector or the type of person with keen interest and knowledge who would have understood the difference between the two models and what was actually being sold and bought on eBay this week.
4: Have you found new Evergleam or Evergleam-type products or related products since writing this book?
6: There is an official um, company advertisement back from the 1960s for a tree which is known as the silver spruce. It's unique because it has downward swept branches as opposed to the typical upward swept branches that we're all familiar with, yet nobody that we know of has one in a private collection anywhere in the world so we have to think if the aluminum specialty company spent enough time and enough money to build at least one of them to have it professionally photographed and then to have their designer place it on a catalog page from the early 1960s where are they Where did it go? Was it a project that got scrapped for one reason or another? Or is one waiting to be discovered in a basement or forgotten attic somewhere in the upper Midwest, maybe even close to home in Manitowoc, Wisconsin? But the possibility that one is waiting to be discovered makes the collecting so interesting and it just keeps me involved and engaged year-round, hoping that we find the the elusive and the mysterious Silver Spruce.
4: It's such, I don't know, it's such a, a nod to a time period where we, you know, s- stupidly thought we knew everything, but we were exploring space and we were, you know, it was a time of social unrest, of political unrest, But you had this sort of gleaming beacon that came out of it and came out of it from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, of all places. I would not think of, especially now, I would not think of Wisconsin as a beacon for hope in the 60s.
6: As we speak, I'm looking at photographs from my personal collection. On the one hand, I'm looking at a pair of lovely African-American ladies um, probably in their late teens, early 20s. I purchased this photograph from a family in Detroit. They have an aluminum Christmas tree. But in addition to the aluminum Christmas tree, I'm looking at their clothes. I'm looking at their jewelry. I'm looking at their hair. I'm looking at their furniture, their plants. I'm looking at their drapes. I go to the next photograph, and these are all um, young men from Fort Worth um, there's, there's nothing terribly eccentric about them. They're, they're from middle class, largely white families. Um, they've received a gun for Christmas. They have an aluminum Christmas tree in the back. One of them has probably a blazer from some highfalutin private school somewhere. And then I go to the next photograph and I see a child who's probably seven, eight years old. Of course, he has the very finest aluminum Christmas tree in the background with a halo board and a diorama, and he's got steeper orb lights, but he's just received an accordion on Christmas morning, which he has strapped on, and he's playing it for his mother and father, presumably. This would never occur in Texas. But what ties all of these things together, obviously, is the aluminum Christmas tree, Yet the people who have them come from so very many diverse backgrounds, um, social status. Um, Some of them appear to possibly, you know, be lower middle class, maybe not well to do. Um, Others uh, appear to be from very affluent families. But it fascinates me how the aluminum Christmas tree transcends all of those things during the Christmas time in the early 1960s. It's absolutely fascinating.
4: For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields.
1: And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors, Jennifer Fields, Paul Herman, and Dylan Brogan. Dylan Brogan also engineered tonight's show. Nate Wiggyhouse produced this newscast, and Miss Charlie Pittman is the news director here at WORT thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Lee.
0: And I'm your host, Paul Herman. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.